That's one of our favorite songs as a family. And uh, it's interesting that the Lord would choose to have that song sung tonight because the topic for this evening is about discipline. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. When you think of discipline, you don't think, carry me tenderly, <laughs> you know. That's not generally what we think of. We think of hardship and struggles. But I, I'm, I'm going to bring this to a connection here in a second, right? The book of Hebrews is written to a church that's facing persecution, 
And they're tempted to lose heart and go back into Judaism. That's, that's what they're facing right now. And as we progress through the book of Hebrews, the author is trying to encourage them that Jesus is better. He is greater than everything that you left behind. And in trying to encourage starts in chapter 10, in verse number 36, with this theme. He says in Hebrews 10, verse 36, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. In spite of all this, this, these trials, these persecutions that are coming, you have need of patience or endurance to continue on. And then chapter 11, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews that we read, the, is the chapter of faith. And we all know it, but we don't necessarily know why it's there to begin with, right? Why is, the, is chapter 11 there? But it's to remind these believers that there have been other men who went before them in faith and ran their race. They completed their race. And they trusted God. They believed God. And they, compl- and they finished their race. And then he gets into chapter 12. And chapter 12, which is our main text here, he starts off with these words. Wherefore? Wherefore? Because of what I have just said about these believers in Hebrews chapter 11, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now let's tie this back into the idea of the tenderness of God. Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart, right? That doesn't change even in the difficult times, even in the hardships, even even when he's punishing us or disciplining us. That doesn't change. Notice, if we're not going to get to this verse, but let's look at verse number 12 of chapter 12, okay? The author teaches on discipline, but he concludes with these words. This is the encouragement. This is the challenge we're supposed to take away from these words. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Even in the the discipline, the, the trials of life, God's heart is that we would be carried along tenderly even in those moments. And as a church, we have a responsibility to come alongside those who are under the discipline of the Lord or who are going through trials and to lift up the weak knees, to lift them up and to make their path straight. And literally that, that verse means to remove all, of the temp, all the possibilities of stumbling before their, before their feet. That's what love looks like in the church. And that's what love looks like from our God. So, that, so even in those moments, Jesus, we need him to carry us tenderly. So chapter number 12 starts off again, as I said, with an exhortation, a challenge for us to, first of all, to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and to run with patience. That's kind of the theme, the the, uh, idea that uh, the author is trying to present that we want to keep in mind is this athletic type of race. And one thing that I noticed in verse number one that I think is important here, when when we talk about this topic of discipline and correction from the Lord, the training of the Lord. Verse number one ends with these three words. The race that is set before us, right? God has a plan to mold us and to shape us into his image. And when those trials of life come, when the difficulties, the persecution comes, God has a reason for it. He is seeking to mold us and to shape us into his image. It is set before us. It is God's will for our life. 
And so you see in this passage that God is working in our lives to train us and to mold us into holiness. And if you thought about any of the parenting messages I've preached so far, this should remind you of a, of a theme that I've been hitting in almost every single one of them. The purpose of parenting is ultimately to do what? Okay, I'll say it. <laughs> Nobody answered. To train our children, right? We want to train our children. We started with the, the verse in Proverbs, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But that is the focus of our parenting. It is to train up our children. And so when we want to figure out how should we do this, we have no better, no greater example than the Lord himself and how he trains and molds and shapes us. And so we should model our parenting to follow after that example that he has set before us. The life you are living with all its ups and its downs, with its hardships, its trials, even the blessings, they're all designed by God to train us. I put in here, um, in my notes, we don't like the pain oftentimes associated with being transformed into the image of Christ. That's not always easy, you know? Um, we were talking this, this morning about when you've yelled at your kids, and you've got to humble yourself and turn to your kids and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? That's not easy, right? <laughs> Training is not easy. Joshua with basketball, if you do line drills, those are the worst part of basketball practice in my opinion, so line drills, are those easy? No, they're not easy. I almost have a heart attack because I have asthma, but anyways, and I've always had asthma. So, but I, I played basketball at the Christian school we went to before we came here, and they did line drills every single practice. It was like run, run, run all the time, back and forth. And I wanted to die, you know, because training is not easy. It's not pleasurable, you know, and that's kind of the theme that we come across in, the, in this text is God brings unpleasurable moments into our lives to train us and to shape us and to mold us. Suffering is the most fertile ground for the growth of our souls because it tills up the hardened heart. God brings these things into our lives because a lot of times we settle into comfort and apathy and habit over time. And the ground of our lives lies fallow, unplowed, and we begin to settle for where we are spiritually. And we don't like change because change is painful. I was meditating on change actually this week. I was reading a poem by, uh, it might be a song even, by, um, what's his name, Faber? Frederick Faber, Faber? Okay. But he was talking about how change is the least like God of all of his, of all of his creations. Because God's unchangeable, right? Change is the least like God. It's not pleasurable. It's not a good thing in and of itself. But we need change. It's a necessary evil in our lives. We need to be changing into the image of, of Christ. But change hurts. It's not pleasurable. And as so, we are tempted to fight back against God when we're, when we're hurting, or we flee back into our souls. Verse number five of the text talks about two negative responses, and we talked about these from the book of Proverbs. Because if you remember, this is a quotation from Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. Let's read verse five. It says, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Two negative responses to these times of suffering, these times of trial, these times of training in our lives is first of all to despise, to think lightly of, or to think with contempt towards, to sneer, to get angry at what God is trying to do. And this leads ultimately to rebellion and fighting against God in our hearts. 
the other response that we're often prone to do is to faint. And he says, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Fainting is to lose heart, to quit, to give up, because we are discouraged. Uh, in our minds, we might be thinking something like this. If there's, some, if there's so much wrong with me, what's the point of even trying, right? There's no hope for me. I might as well just quit. Guy gives in to, to uh, sin, some kind of sexual sin, and he says, well, there's no hope anymore. Might as well just indulge in it, right? And that is, that is fainting. That is losing heart. And so we, we try to get out from under God's plow in our lives because we've lost heart. But God has brought that plow into the lives of these Hebrew Christians, and he has brought suffering. In this case, this suffering was God's plan to correct them, to train them, to mold them, and to develop them in holiness. And now, obviously, not all suffering is God trying to, is, not, is because of sin. Not all suffering is because of sin. But God does have a purpose for it, a training purpose in our lives. And so this church, they're going through the suffering, and the author challenges them to look at Jesus. Verse number two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The, the text describes Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. And that word author, it encompasses a couple different meanings. It can mean the beginner, the person who initiates our salvation, which he is, right? But it also includes this idea of being, it's used for a forerunner, somebody who runs before you. And that's the context, is it not? It's, it's an athletic context. It's a running context. A forerunner is somebody who goes before you and sets the pace as you run. Okay, Jesus go, went before and he set the example. He, he, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. Literally, the phrase there is he shamed the shame in, in Greek. And now he is set down on the right hand of the throne of God because he, he endured such contradiction of sinners against him. He endured the hostility and the trials and the persecution and the suffering that his life encompassed. And you think about the life of Jesus Christ. He was not sitting on a throne with diamond rings and, and people bowing at him while he was on earth, was he? No, his life was fraught with trials and persecution and rejection the entire time. And then it climaxed with his, with his crucifixion. But Christ endured all of that. And God, in the end, rewarded him. He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I've said all of that to get us to this point here. We need to understand the context for the verses we're going to be looking at the context for God's model of discipline. The author of Hebrews reminds us of how our Lord dealt, deals with us in correcting us. And you may not like everything that maybe Proverbs said about disciplining your children, but God himself sets, sets an example for us to follow. And much, much of what you're going to hear tonight will just reinforce what I said last week from a different angle. Okay, that's basically, it's going to be a review because you need to hear it and you need to see it. You need to see that it's not just something we're supposed to do, but it's something God does. And if God does it, it's right, right? And so we should want to model our parenting after God's method of disciplining his children. <clears throat> we want to see how God treats you as his child. Okay, so we're going to look at three points of the model of God and how he disciplines his children, starting in verse number six. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, 
and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. There was a verse we looked at in the book of Proverbs sounded a lot like this, right? The, the motive behind our parenting, our discipline, our spanking even, is love. We love and therefore we discipline our children. And God corrects us because he loves us. Biblical discipline must be motivated by love. And the author of Hebrews reminds us of our relationship with God when he starts off with saying uh, that we are children. He speaks to you as children. God, is, God has a relationship with us and he loves us. He, he is concerned about us. Verse 11 reminds us that in the moment, no chastening for the present time seemeth to be joyous, but it is what? It is grievous. God's discipline, it isn't, all, it isn't this, this joyful event in our lives. It's not like a birthday party, right? It is it's grievous. It is hard. It is difficult. Suffering hurts. It hurts to be in pain. It hurts to have your heart wrecked by someone you love turn their back on you. It hurts to be hated by other people, right? It hurts to be ignored and treated like you don't matter or to be overlooked. And it hurts when God takes something away from us that was very precious to us. God's discipline hurts, and so oftentimes we would tend in those moments to doubt God's love because his chastening hurts us. In that moment, that's when we're tempted to doubt his love. And spanking our children sometimes hurts too, right? How many of you kids ever had a spanking? Don't raise your hand. Did it hurt or did it not? Okay, you raise your hand anyways. Kids, unanimously, did it hurt or did it not? Depends on who did it now, okay? So, no, right? But spanking, spanking hurts too. And as parents, we don't delight in causing them pain, right? That's, that's not what makes us happy here. We don't get our kicks from causing our children pain. But, but that pain is a necessary part of their training process. They need it. And if God uses pain to train us in holiness, why wouldn't we as parents think that it is appropriate that we should as well? There is a connection there. God feels that this is an appropriate way to train, train his children, and we as parents ought to as well. Verse 5 again reminds us that we are children, and, and I've been, I put this verse into my, my prayer box. I've been meditating on it every week, but Isaiah 49 verse 15 talks about the love that God has for us, right? It says, can a woman forget her suckling child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget yet will I not forget thee. The idea here is some women, they might not have the type of love for their children that they ought to, and they could forget their children and ignore it. That's happened in the past. You think of the story of the women who rolled over their baby in the middle of the night and then tried to steal the baby from the other woman, and there's something wrong there, right? <laughs> okay, so earthly women may not have the type of love that they ought to. They may not care. They may not pay attention to their children the way that they ought to, but God will not forget us. He will always pay attention and show his love towards us. And so God's chastening is not a sign that he has forgotten us. These trials are not moments of, of him forgetting. Rather, it is a sign that he remembers us and is paying attention to our lives. He loves us and he's working to mold us into something amazing. Verse 6 continues on and, and reminds us that the Lord loves those who he chastens. And just to remind us that the pain that comes with chastening, he says, chastens and scourgeth, right? Okay, you can't, you, can, you might be able to take chastens and say, oh, there's no pain involved in that. That's just training, right? But scourgeth, I don't think you're going to get that conclusion from the word scourgeth, right? That's pretty clear there. 
God's chastening, his training involves pain. But it reminds me of Proverbs 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Now, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do you measure love? How do you tell if somebody loves you, right? Because that, that's where the disconnect is here in this whole chastening thing. We, we have wrong standards of how we measure love, and, and they might be good in and of themselves, but they're not complete. If I were to say, this person loves so-and-so, I would expect that they would treat them nicely, right? Okay? They would be kind to them. That's a sign that somebody loves you. Sorry, I'm thinking Disney movies now. So, you know, but uh, how do you know he loves you? Anyways, okay. So how do you know he loves you? So he talks kindly to you is, is one way that you know that he loves you, okay? Does he speak to you? Actually, with teenagers, it's usually the other way around, okay? If they like you, they don't talk to you because they're afraid to say something, okay? But if he speaks to you, that might be a sign that he, that he loves you, right? Do they remember what you like and what you don't like, okay? If you hate mushrooms, does he order a pizza that's just plain old mushrooms for you? No, he doesn't, right? Wives, you wish your husbands would remember these things, the things that, that bug you to death, and hopefully over time they will learn those things, right? But that's a sign that, that somebody loves you. Do they notice when you are upset, right? What ticks you off, what upsets you, what makes you discouraged even? Do they notice those things? Somebody who's in love is attuned to that. They see it. Do they do things for you or buy you little gifts to show you love? Those are all measures that we could test our love by. But all these things show love and they can help measure love, but the real test of love is how much do they want what is best for you. That's the key here. When it comes to discipline, it may not feel like love in the warm, fuzzy feeling sort of way. It may not have all of these, these hallmarks of our relationships and how we show love to each other. But God in his discipline that he wants what is best for our lives and he is trying to shape us and to mold us into that. We can do all these things to show our love to our kids. But if we don't do what's best for them, our love is ultimately selfish. It is about us. It is one-sided. God doesn't bring suffering into our lives because it makes him happy in some sadistic sort of way. God doesn't chasten us because he just demands obedience and you aren't respecting him enough. That's not how God reacts. That's not why God does what he does. God chastens us because he loves us and he wants what's best for our lives. So the first thing that we see about God's correction as a model for our parenting is that he, model, he, he disciplines out of love and a desire our good. Second thing is found in verses 7 through 8. It says, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Okay, and we'll just stop right there. But God corrects us secondly because we are his children. Verse 7 starts off with the words, if ye endure chastening. And that word if there is I'm going to bore you with Greek again, okay? A first-class conditional means the author is assuming this to be true for the sake of argument here. God, if you are sons, and you are, right, then how does God deal with you? God deals with you. He chastens you. He, he, uh, he brings chastisement into the lives of his children. And there is a special relationship between a father and a son, a mother and her daughter, and between parents and their children, 
And God only disciplines us because we matter to him as his children. We are his children. Not only does God love us, but he values his relationship with us. And he wants it to be as close as possible. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to pick on Bella today. Is that all right? Okay. Well, let's say Bella, Bella decides one day she's going to become a punk rocker, dye her hair black, have spikes, get a spike collar, marry a smash guitars on the ground. Okay, anyways, going too far with this illustration, okay? So there's going to be something in the, in, wrong with our relationship, right? Okay, so especially if she turns to me and says, Dad, I hate you. I wish you would drop dead, right? Okay, is our relationship peachy keen? No, it's not. And until that's dealt with, we're not going to have the type of relationship that we want to have between each other. It's the same way with God. When we allow sin into our lives, when there's, there's problems in our lives, that exist in our relationship, they're keeping us from being close to God. And so sin in our lives keeps us from being close to God. Not, and again, not all suffering is because of sin. Sometimes God is trying to teach us lessons about himself. <clears throat> but I think sometimes we don't think about sin the way that we should. We are more guilty of sin than we, than we would ever acknowledge. We think of sin as, I didn't steal, I didn't lie, I didn't uh, disobey my parents, I didn't... Uh, commit adultery, I didn't uh, do things that I shouldn't have done. But there are sins that plague us more than we would like to admit, like, like uh, anger, pride, selfishness. And these things need to be weeded out of our lives just as much as any other sins. And, so, and those things stand between us and, between, and God, and they hurt our relationship with him. A simple definition that I used to use when I was teaching children's church in college for sin is sin is anything I think, say, or do that displeases God. Now, it's very simplistic, but, it, but it's accurate because it's not just the things I do. It's also the, the things that I think and the things that I say. Those can also be sin in my life. Wrong attitudes are sin. Wrong words are sin. And obviously, wrong actions are sin as well. And God wants to work us work those sinful patterns of thinking, those sinful habits, those words out of our lives because they hurt that father-son relationship. When it comes to parenting, okay, if we value our relationship with our children like we should, we will want to remove the things that are hurting that relationship. <clears throat> if your kids are severely disrespectful towards you as a parent, you got to deal with that problem, right? It's hurting your relationship. If they're consistently lazy and they don't do anything, you got to deal with that problem as well, right? And I could keep on going with the list, but dealing with these problems shows that your children matter to you. You value them. You want what's best for them. Again, going back to that definition of love. But leaving them to their own devices actually shows that you don't care. And they will bring shame into your life according to the book of Proverbs. But this point also highlights the fact that God only disciplines his children. Notice that. He says, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. And the idea here is if you're not going through chastening, if God's not working in your life, you're not one of his children, right? That's, that's the conclusion. God chastens his children. All of them experience chastening in their lives. And honestly, I, when I think about this verse, I'm reminded that really my kids are my kids. 
They are not your kids. They are my kids. I'm actually pretty particular about this fact. No other adult should be spanking my kids other than me because no other adult has the relationship with my kids that I do. And that's key. I am father to that child. I love that child. I can't guarantee any other stranger, any other person that I know has that kind of a relationship and will do discipline right because discipline is not just about spanking. It isn't. It's about more than that. It's about the relationship. It's about instruction. It's about guidance. And nobody else can do that like I can as the parent. Other people's kids don't have the kind of relationship with me that my kids do. That's, that's the key here. It's the main reason I don't spank other kids and, you, and I don't think you should spank my kids because I don't have the same love and the same value relationship with your kids that I do with my own kids. We can get on to them when they misbehave. I don't have a problem with that. But no one can properly discipline them without that parental love relationship. Hebrews says in verse number eight that if you do not receive chastening, then the obvious conclusion is what? You are not a son. What kind of message are we communicating to our children when we do not discipline and deal with problems in their behavior? If the implication of not receiving chastening is you are not a son, you are not a child, we are telling our children that we, that, that relation, we don't view that relationship like that. We don't view them as children, as sons to us. And, it, and honestly, it's sending them the message that we don't value our children the way that we ought to because we don't care enough to fix the problems that are there. So God corrects us out of love. He corrects us because we are his children, verses 9 through 11. He corrects us for our profit, verses 9 through 11. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The third reason that God chastens us, that he disciplines us, is for our benefit, for our profit. Verse 9 begins with a description of our human parents. Not all of us had great, godly, human par parents in our lives to model our parenting after. The fathers of our flesh corrected us, and according to this verse, we respected them enough to start obeying them at least, right? Okay? When your parents got onto you and said, hey, stop that, right? What did you do? Not, maybe not in 2020 culture, but back in the 90s at least, okay? When your parents said, stop doing that, you did it. You stopped doing that, okay? Um, I remember one time I, I, uh, went, I was going to the military public school, and I came home and I said my very first and only cuss word in my entire life, okay? And my mom took me to the bathroom and stuck a bar of soap down my throat. Did I ever cuss again? No, her correction, I obeyed. You know, I referenced her correction. From that time forward, I listened to her when she said, don't do this, right? And so we respect our parents in, enough to obey them, hopefully, when they correct us, how much more should we respect and reverence our God when he corrects us, when the Father of spirits corrects us? We oftentimes don't give him the respect and the obedience that he deserves. If we did, the results would be that we would, we would live according to the text. We would, we would flourish under that. Verse 10 makes another contrast between our earthly and our heavenly father. Our earthly fathers sometimes disciplined us for the wrong reasons, do they not? 
Sometimes they were angry. They were upset. They snapped. They lashed out. Sometimes they were being selfish. They're sitting there playing their video game and the kids are being too loud and then they can't pay attention. And so they, they yell and they scream. Our parents sometimes discipline us for the wrong reason. In the text it says that, they that for a few days they chastened us after their own pleasure. Now that phrase, after their own pleasure, it can talk about what pleased them, what made them happy. And it doesn't it feel good to, when you're angry, to lash out, to, to just scream and yell at people? You ever feel like that when you're angry at people? No, maybe? Okay. So <laughs> that brings pleasure. The word pleasure, though, can also talk about what was logical to them. It is from that word for logic, what made sense to the parents. Our parents aren't necessarily bad parents lashing out all the times either, even though I think most parents fit, fall prey to this at some point. But they do what is logical to them, and sometimes what is logical to them isn't what is right. They do the best that they can. And children, look up at me, okay? Pay attention here. Be merciful to your parents. They did the best they can, okay? So they may, they're, they're going to make mistakes, but they did the best that they can, okay? <clears throat> and so they do what's logical, but sometimes they make mistakes. No parent is perfect, okay? But God, in this text, says he chastens us for our profit, God wants to develop in us good things. And that's, that's one of the goals of chastening is to develop our children in holiness and righteousness and in becoming like Christ. And he knows that a life lived in harmony with God brings the greatest satisfaction and the greatest joy. And so he's merely trying to get us to experience that benefit of walking with him in obedience. Now in our text, we're given at least two benefits of God's discipline. The first one is he says that we might be partakers of his holiness. So why does, what, what's the end goal that God wants to accomplish in disciplining us? To make us partakers of his holiness. God wants to develop within us a true holiness. Galatians 4 verse 19 says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now this is Paul's heart, Paul's desire, but it's the same as God's. Paul labored, like giving birth to this church until Christ would be formed in them. And that was, that was his heart. And God labors in our lives until Christ be formed in us, to see Christ live his life through us. And as parents, we should want to, we should want to do the same thing in the lives of our children. Notice the word partakers. That means to be a sharer in his holiness. It isn't my holiness. It isn't about me. It isn't about how good I am. It's his holiness. And again, Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. True holiness doesn't come by you doing a bunch of things that you think are right and wrong. That doesn't accomplish true holiness. True holiness is Christ living his life through you, which will result in you doing certain things, right? And not doing other things. But true holiness is Christ living in us because only he is holy. We fall far short of that. And God wants to develop in you and in me Christ-like character that comes through 
by abiding in Christ. So he, he desires our benefit. He wants us to be partakers of holiness. The second result here in verse number 11 says that afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. A right relationship brings peace, does it not? There is turmoil when we are at odds with God. There is turmoil when our kids are at odds with us. And so God disciplines us so that the relationship can be at peace, can be restored back together again. Parenting is not about venting our frustrations. It's not about getting our kids to stop embarrassing us or, or even causing them pain. Parenting is about helping our children to grow into the adults that God wants them to be. It's almost guaranteed that if we do not discipline them, the result is they will not get there apart from God intervening. But it's almost guaranteed that that's where they're going to get. If we do not discipline them, they will not reach that goal on their own. God might bring somebody else into their life who rescues them by inspiring them to work with God. But we as a parent didn't get them there because we failed to train them and to develop them and to produce these fruits and this benefit in their lives. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and bring this to a conclusion tonight, but this message... It's been a little bit softer on the exhortation, per se, than some of my other messages, because my goal tonight is not to say, hey, you got parents, you need to shape it up. No. We look at an example to be inspired about what we could be like and what we should be like. And Jesus Christ, God, the way they interact with us, that should inspire us to be the parents that we ought to be. We should want to be like that. Because we know what God's doing in our lives and we see the benefit of what God's doing in our lives. We want to share that with our children. Think back over your life and the lessons that God taught you. Okay? Were any of those, those events in your life associated with painful experiences? The moments when God taught you some of your greatest lessons in life? It is sometimes at those moments that we grow leaps and bounds. And if it hadn't been for those experiences, what lessons would you have learned in your spiritual walk with Christ? Now let's apply that to parenting. What lessons do your kids need to learn that they won't learn without an element of the pain of spanking to reinforce that? Do you want to see your children learn those lessons? Okay. Granted, it would, be, it would be a lot easier if they would just listen without the spanking and they would, get, they would do the right thing. That would be so much better. But sometimes you have to reinforce that lesson with the spanking. How often do we learn our lessons from God without his chastening in our lives? He, we can hear the same messages preached over and over and over again. And it isn't until God brings us to a valley that we oftentimes learn those lessons the way that we ought to. Let's go ahead and stand head bowed and eyes closed. I already asked last week whether you're willing to submit your thinking about parenting to the authority of God. But I'm going to reiterate that here tonight, okay? Will you trust that God has modeled before us the best way to train your children in holiness? God knows what he is doing. And he does it out of love. He does it because he values us as his children. And he always does it for our benefit and for our good.
usually that means Chloe's picking on her or something, and she wants to talk to me about that, right? But, <laughs> but it wasn't that, that kind of a talk this evening. And Bella had made a decision in her life that she wanted to share with the church, so I'm actually going to give her the microphone and let her tell us, except this one is not on. Yep. Can I switch mics, Jeff? Okay. Yeah, the other one's off. Okay, Bella, you want to kind of tell them what decision you made? I decided when I grow up, I'm going to be a missionary. When I first started being called, I think it was when my dad talked about Yemen and how they weren't saved and none of them know God, so. And she told me also at South, uh, was it South Under Challenge? Challenge. With Brother Stevenson, when he was preaching, that he was preaching on waiting, but waiting to serve the Lord, and God was working in her heart that he wanted her to, to do something to serve him, so. Just figured it'd be good for us to pray for her, to uh, encourage her, as this was about the age I was when I felt God was leading me into ministry. So don't discount nine, ten-year-old kid coming forward and saying, hey, I want to serve the Lord. That's, that's precious and that's important. Let's go ahead and close in prayer this evening. Father, I thank you for my daughter, Bella. Lord, I've seen the heart that you've given her heart that loves you and a heart that wants to do what's right and cares about worshiping you. And Lord, she's very tender to your spirit and to what you're trying to accomplish in her life. I thank you for putting this desire in her to serve you in some way. And Lord, she has a desire to be a missionary, and I pray that that would be the way that you would use her someday, Lord. And that you'll guide her each step of the way and help us as a church to come along and encourage her and lift her up and help guide her along that path to invest in her life, to help her walk with you in a closer way, to know how to share her faith with others, and just to show her love for you to, other, to the world around them. Father, we thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.